Good morning or good afternoon, depending on the time zone you're in. Uh, this is Student Affairs Live. Uh, hello and welcome. Uh, this is a wonderful opportunity. If you're looking for Heather Shea Gasser, she is uh, traveling the world, I believe, in the Netherlands right now. Uh, this is Keith Edwards. I'm filling as guest host. Um, we want to welcome you to Student Affairs Live, the online learning community for student affairs educators. Today we'll be talking about men and masculinities in higher education. You can participate in today's episode by following along on the back channel and tweeting to the hashtag HigherEdLive. Thank you to Erica Thompson for helping out with the back channel today. She's going to be um, chiming in on tweets and sending messages our way. Um, in a moment, I'll introduce you to the guests, but we can't do that without first giving a shout-out to the sponsors that make Student Affairs Live possible. Student Affairs Live is part of the Higher Ed Live Network, and you can tune in to episodes with your regular host, Heather Shea Gasser, and her co-host, the wonderful Tony Duty, on Wednesdays at 1 p.m. Eastern Time. If you're unfamiliar with past episodes, we highly recommend you check out and favorite the, link, the archive link that's getting tweeted out now. Higher Ed Live is produced by M. Stoner, a marketing and communications firm that works with education institutions on branding, strategy, web design, and more. Are you ready to recruit the class of 2021? Learn where to focus your time and energy in marketing to teens during M. Stoner's next free webinar, Myth-Busting Admissions, where prospects and professionals agree and disagree on enrollment marketing, messages, and channels. We'll tweet out a link shortly where you can sign up. <clears throat> this is also sponsored by ACPA, College Student Educators, um, well, a proud sponsor of Student Affairs Live, one of the many ways you can be innovative with your own professional development. ACPA is home to the Coalition on Men and Masculinities. Two of our guests today, Tracy and Dan, have both served as chairs for this entity. We encourage you to check it out, engage, and get involved. Now, on with today's episode. Today I'm joined by four wonderful folks who I admire and respect a great deal. Well, we thought we would have four. Unfortunately, Rachel Wagner, Associate Director of Residence Life at Iowa State, had a flight delay and won't be able to join us. We're sad to miss Rachel's wisdom and insight, but we still have three great panelists. Tracy Davis is Professor and College Student Personnel Program Coordinator and Founding Director of the Center for the Study of Masculinities and Men's Development. Wilson O'Kello is an instructor, research associate, and doctoral student in Student Affairs and Higher Education Program at Miami University, and founder of the Truth to Power Project. And Dan Tillipa is Assistant Professor of Counselor Education at California Lutheran University. We have got a lot to talk about, so let's go ahead and get started. I um, thought we would jump right in that right now in, in my social media feed and um, on mainstream media as well, there's a great deal of media attention to the story of Brock Turner, who was convicted of rape and sentenced to six months in jail. This story and that sentence has brought the dynamics of sexual violence on college campuses to a wider audience than usual. Um, yesterday I was picking my daughters up for daycare and another parent wanted to talk with me about this, which I don't typically get those kind of conversations at daycare pickup. Um, but it brings up an opportunity to bring up this topic with folks who aren't typically having these kinds of conversations. Uh, the topic brings up victim blaming, privilege, rape culture, alcohol, men's socializations, campus adjudication and responses, the criminal justice system, and bystander intervention. I just wanted to ask each of our panelists to chime in, and Tracy, we'll start with you. Just uh, what has come up for you related to our topic today as you've watched this story unfold? 
Well, I have, and if you're if you're looking to me uh, to be the social media guru, you're looking in the wrong direction. But I have been keeping up on the story. Fortunately, it's been one that social media has kept in front of us, and in fact, sometimes better than the larger media. Uh, I, I think one a couple things struck me. Uh, as you said, there's multiple dimensions to this issue. Um, privilege certainly being one of them. The fact that um, so much attention has been given. Uh, uh, to to or, or or not been given to this this uh, perpetrator. Um, certainly, the the uh, finding from the judge, the sentencing from the judge, is unbelievably uh, is an unbelievable response in some ways, and an all too believable response in other ways. I just was reading a story of an African American male uh, five or six years ago as a 16-year-old who was uh, brought up on sexual assault charges and turns out they were false charges, but he was convicted and was given a six-year sentence under virtually no evidence. In this situation, you had all kinds of evidence. In fact, as you mentioned, they had bystanders that intervened and, and disrupted the event. And uh, there's a lot of lenses you can put on this. Certainly masculinity and patriarchy and privileges is, is one of them. Um, but I guess I'm... I'm the thing that strikes me probably the most is is uh, we I've been doing sexual assault work like I know you have Keith for a lot of years and um, the 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 fact that this can continue to happen and the discourse that follows is very similar to the way it was twenty forty a hundred years ago is um, problematic. Yeah, I I also think it's a bit of a sign that. Um a bit of a sign that we're having these conversations and, and that there is this outrage. I think that outrage is, is some, in some ways new. I mean, this is not the first time that someone's conviction has received a light sentence, but it really seems to be a different approach, which is maybe a sign of progress. Uh, Wilson, what do you want to add around this topic in, in our conversation today? Yeah. Uh, you mentioned the idea of uh, the, the sentencing and um, the uh, sort of the relative outrage um, that social media has been promulgating. Uh, for me, I, I think it's uh, it's it's not a uh, for me the like, the outrage is isn't new. I think it it depends on the communities that we're talking about, right? And mm -hmm. so, um, you know, as Chasey mentioned, there was uh, there's stories, um, and it's one of several where um, I think um, the readings of uh, masculine bodies who are racialized masculine bodies. Um, uh, gets treated read differently and the sentencing um, is sort of exercised differently and so um, yeah I think this has been a conversation going on in some communities for uh, for a long time and um, you know this is uh, you know I guess another uh, this is a, another chapter to that right and so um, you know I start to think about places of intervention and um, how do we begin to um, um, Sort of in, intervene, and you know, as these things are happening, how do we how do we begin not only to critique patriarchy, um, and um, but also the ways in which um, historically this has happened in um, in different communities, and um, so sort of the uh, the rules that exist for um, uh, for some bodies um, in terms of perpetuating this narrative, and so. <clears throat> yeah, Dan, what would you like to add? You know, I, I think for me personally, um, you know, I appreciate Wilson's discussion of sort of uh, racialized bodies and masculinity piece. Um, 
I, I was, as he was talking about that, I was thinking about my colleagues Chris Linder and Jessica Harris and their work around sexual violence and talking about um, some of the pieces around that historically, if we look, the numbers have not changed in terms of the number of sexual assaults that happen on colleges and universities for decades. I mean, it's just been the same number over and over. And when we think about all of the sort of best practices or the, the things that we try in terms of interventions, they clearly have not necessarily made a sweeping change. And I think that is a real problem. And I think this case, certainly I think the attention from the Hunting Ground documentary and the, the folks who are doing great work in terms of End Rape on Campus and other organizations are putting this issue at the forefront. Certainly Title IX does that as well and, and um, the work that's needing to happen. Um, but, you know, I'm struck by... A, a lot of these things. One, I, I have to say, I was struck by um, the father's response, right? So the the the, the use of this 20 minutes that, you know, it, it sort of as if that wasn't 20 minutes of hell for that survivor and um, how how much she has um, has sort of put out of herself um, and, and the work of her letter, um, the all of these pieces, I mean, for me, I'm, I'm really struck by that um, and also recognize that that's a huge emotional weight to carry and, and a burden, right? Um, and so, you know, the other piece that I was looking at this morning on social media, a, a friend of mine had posted a piece from Democracy Now! Um, talking about the juxtaposition of um, the case of Jasmine Richards in California, who is an activist with Black Lives Matter, and the fact that she was going to be uh, facing jail time of up to four years um, as a black woman. And meanwhile, this white, privileged, heterosexual male is getting six months in jail for conviction of rape you know it just that that that's so disparate to me and it, and it really um, it brings up so much that's just um, on my mind in terms of how how our justice system is set up how we need to make change um, how we also then need to also take that down to the campus level and make changes within our campus policies and the ways that we are connecting with young men around um, consent around sexual violence all of these issues so a, a lot for me um, that's there and additionally I also want to say I just as more and more social media pieces come out I think that it's important and at the same time, I can't help but think about survivors who also are triggered by the constant news feeds that are happening as well. And so how to balance both, both of those complexities, right? And so how can we also support our friends, our colleagues on social media who are survivors and just can't keep hiding or blocking everyone from seeing that content? So I think that's another piece of this that I think is also important to consider. Yeah, I think I was uh, in that conversation in the driveway yesterday. I was struck with with this person who really felt like this was a really unusual case. Mm -hmm. And I'm struck with what's unusual about this case is that there was a conviction. Mm -hmm. And because there was a conviction, now we have an opportunity to talk about sentencing when really convictions rarely happen. Less than 1% of sexual assaults and rapes end up in a conviction because people don't report, they don't trust the criminal justice system. Um, so, But it is opening it up to people who don't have that conversation normally, and I think that, that can be helpful in broadening 
the conversation between beyond people who are typically having it. Uh, one of the folks on Twitter, Jenny Hemingway, um, said, "Will outrage translate to action?" And I think that's the challenge. Um, and how can we leverage that? Um, and then we also really need to make sure we're we're engaging in culture change because it's the culture change that has led to this has led to the victim blaming, has led to judges' decisions, has led to the father's response, has led to the friend's response, has led to some of the things that the survivor herself is experiencing. So, mm -hmm. lots, lots to unpack there. Um, so I appreciate you sort of jumping in with what's going on right now, um, um, which is certainly heavy, certainly heavy and, and, and weighs, weighs on me for sure, and I know um, the work that that many of you do, and, and probably have many survivors who are listening to this and watching this as well, and heavy for them. So I want to want to recognize that. I want to shift to broadening the conversation. We kind of zoomed in on men and masculinities and sexual violence there, and what's currently happening in the media. I kind of want to zoom out and um, get a broader picture about men and masculinities and what's going on. And Tracy, you've been at this longer than the rest of us. You've had that that honor. Uh, many of us have learned from your scholarship and your thinking and your mentorship. I certainly have. And I'm, I'm wondering if you can offer us that perspective. How, how have you seen the study of men and masculinities in higher education change over time in higher education? Hmm. Well, I appreciate your kind words. I, I, right before I answer that question, I, if, if anyone has any uh, questions why a survivor might not report uh, the assault right away, you might want to take a look at this survivor's letter that she wrote. It's a pretty powerful uh, uh, commentary, uh, just a very brave, let me say that, a very brave uh, 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 response to the craziness that's happening, to, happening around her, and I just think it's worth hearing her voice. So I know it's gotten a lot of reads, but it's worth uh, listening to. But thanks for your nice words. I'm not sure everybody who I've mentored or read my scholarship would agree that it's been as positive as, as, as you suggest. I, I appreciate your comments, though. Um, you know, one of the ways that, that this has changed that I've seen in the last 20-plus years is that, um, well, first of all, you have scholars like Wilson and Dan and Rachel Wagner and Sean Harper and a whole, Frank Harris, Susan Marine. Uh, Chris Linder, uh, Z. Nicolazzo, Chase Catalano, just a whole host of folks doing outstanding work uh, that are complicating what we used to uh, think of uh, men and masculinities as uh, embodied uh, masculinity. We used to think of men and maleness rather than masculinity and the, the, the social, institutional, systemic impact, similar to race and the construction of masculinity has been constructed in some ways uh, like race, uh, this, this construction to uh, serve to privilege some folks, give benefits, distribute benefits to some folks, and uh, oppress others, uh, target others. Um, so I, I, I see a, a major shift kind of in second wave feminism back in the 60s and 70s, 80s. Um, I still see the thing of gender in binary ways and in embodied ways. So I think one of the things that I've, I've been happy to see happen is uh, an acknowledgement of the multiple dimensions of identity and how those intersect and operate, multiple layers of, of identity, uh, intersectionality and context and history, 
Um, so it's given us this appropriate focus on thinking of how masculinity is constructed, how it exists beyond men's development, and moves us away from simplistic notions so that we contextualize um, masculinities. We think of the power associated with that. Mm -hmm. And it also moves us away from this gender binary where trans identity, where um, uh, as Halberstam and others have written, uh, women have masculinity, men have femininity. Um, moving this out of the body into these larger issues is where I hope we go. And I guess one other thing, I hope we move Judith Butler's work on performativity um, does some of the same thing. Like, like her scholarship is a result of dis, disembodying masculinity or disembodying gender and looking at it as the performance and, um, and what that looks like, what that means, um, how that influences material consequences for, hum, for, for lives, for people. So I hope we go in two directions in the future. One is a critical approach that continues to interrogate masculinity, but I want that balanced with the compassionate approach as well. That's, those might seem diametrically opposed, but I think once you dissolve that duality between critical and compassionate, I think you find some ways to work with institutional and people um, rather than either oring those, kind of working together with those tensions and find that space between where we can continue to make people's lives better. I mean, that's what this should be about. Right. Wonderful. A, a quick look back and uh, look into the future, too. I really appreciate that, Tracy, and, and challenging the binary um, and the social construction of gender and how we think about that and, and critical scholarship is, is really great. Wilson, you're particularly focused uh, on the study and research and the practice of pedagogy of liberation. How does this integrate with the study of men and masculinities for you? Yeah, yeah. Um, Tracy, I, you know, I do want to say I appreciate um, your thoughts around uh, criticality and uh, compassion. For me, um, you know, I agree. I, I don't think they're, they're diametrically opposed. I actually think about criticality as an act of love. Um, and so as we think about the work and so uh, so thank you for that um, also uh, I want to just kind of steer right uh, back to uh, to something uh, to the conversation Dan uh, was having um, around uh, particularly interventions and uh, what we can do for campus policies and um, I've been thinking about uh, what we would have to um, to forfeit or what we would have to give up in order for some policies to move forward. And so I think that's a question that's really lingering for me um, in, in terms of my own um, sort of masculine projections, um, but also when we think about how patriarchy exists, um, I think we need to really start asking ourselves what are we willing to forfeit and what are we willing to give up uh, so that uh, policies um, that um, address this and intervene in particular um, can uh, can move forward, and so uh, so I want to to sort of mention those points. But uh, in terms of my uh, my own work, um, Keith, <laughs> to your question, uh, yes, my work um, it does center on agency and the achievement uh, of agency as a formula for really moving through the world uh, with authority. And so um, we know that the body is a, a social instrument, as Tracy mentioned, which figuratively holds projections and inscriptions uh, within its frame. Now. Um, 
these imposed inscriptions are often not ones that we would choose for ourselves. Sometimes we may, but oftentimes they're uh, they're imposed upon us, right? And so with each new iteration, which um, with um, you know popular culture, um, the promulgation of it, and other public and private apparatuses, uh, the body is burdened by uh, new ideas and these uh, you know these new ideologies of who it should be and what uh, it should be, right? And so. And for me, when we talk about agency or with the access to agency, I think it allows for one to define their own reality is what happens. And so these instruments and these apparatus used to facilitate these inscriptions are then weakened and somewhat inapplicable, right? And so um, because I think agency, right, when we talk about liberation, agency in particular creates a space in which it says that the, even though these forces are against me, I'm choosing to move forward in this particular way, right? So it creates this liminal space within these larger structures of oppression that I think uh, grant and, um, and um, grant agency to individuals. And so, um, in particular, the, it's undergirded with uh, black feminism and black feminist thought in particular, right? I think which allows for us, again, to define our, um, for defining space, right? It's um, I think it's a formidable tool of disruption um, um, and revolutionary across gender and sexuality because of the emphasis it places on standpoint politics and dialectics. Now, standpoint politics, as uh, Patricia O. Collins talks about, um, is I talks about how black women occupy a unique standpoint that is unavailable to others, right? The particular locations and race, gender, sex, sexuality, or sexuality um, and class it grants them a unique insight uh, into the world, right? Um, now, for me, I think if we can, as we think about the black uh, woman's experience, right, um, and we acknowledge that they experience domination in all its forms, right? Black women, black trans women experience domination in all its forms, then uh, we should probably be theorizing from a place, uh, theorizing from this place because they're, freedom necessitates everybody's freedom, right? And so this is sort of how it uh, kind of comes back and intervenes in men and masculinity's work because, um, again, if we can uh, start to think differently about how we theorize, then I think um, uh, ultimately we can begin to sort of deconstruct um, these systems of patriarchy. And so uh, so that's standpoint politics in terms of dialectics, in terms of ways of being. So, um, so in uh, black feminist theory, it allows for... Um, different ways of being. So one can be both vulnerable and courageous. They can be outrageous and serious, independent, but also reliant on relationships, right? So there's just different ways of being that may seem diametrically opposed, but uh, really aren't, right? Um, but they allow for all of that to be wrapped up in the body. So again, um, allows for self-definition within this, uh, which offered me, um, in terms of my own positionality, an alternative a vision to construct my own masculine identity, right? One that was not beholden to the, uh, you know, the dated tropes of black patriarchy. Um, and so, um, and then on top of that, there's this idea of self-love that was evident, right? And I think going back to, um, you know, some of what Tracy was talking about, I think for me, self-love is, um, I, I think in this black body for me, right? Um, um, to show up in a world, it, is a is is disruption, right? It means disruption. Um, but I think if we can affirm oneself, right, um, I think that's an act of self-love and revolution, right? Because we're not taught how to love, and we're 
uh, not taught how to affirm ourselves um, in these um, very powerful ways. And so Bell Hooks talks a lot about self-love and when she talks about acceptance and self-responsibility and uh, self-assertiveness and living purposefully, right? So if we can wrap all these ideas up with love and self-definition, I think we can um, we can get at an agency that allows us to move through the world again with authority. And so, um, so that would be... Um, I guess that's hopefully that answers your question in terms of how that looks in practice. <laughs> um, you know, for me, I, I utilize uh, a lot of creativity, uh, particularly poetry, uh, in my work. And so, um, you know, I think that the creative process, particularly poetic performance, um, is an embodied practice that allows us to uh, to be both emotional, um, to to capture both emotion and um, the body, to reconnect mind, body, and spirit in some really powerful ways, and so, um, and to define ourselves, right, um, in public, right, and so there's this sort of public testimony that happens in and through creativity that I think is uh, a unique space and can be powerful when we think about um, granting, um, giving permission for individuals to uh, to define themselves in the world, and so. Yeah, you know, I think that how, how you live that out fully, what you described, is, is really a, a lifetime's work, right? It, I, I agree. <laughs> Absolutely. This, yeah. this isn't an over, <laughs> sort of overnight practice. But, uh, no, and, 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 and what a wonderful lifetime's work. Sure, uh, to be working in the struggle and the process of that. And um, I'm reminded in both Tracy's comments and your comments, Wilson, about Bell Hook's uh, reminder that binary thinking, uh, the either uh, or... Um, the binary of gender, the binary of critique or compassion you know, um, is, is dominator thinking. Sure. And the more we can be reminded of that, um, I think that, that comes easily to many of us now that we have a, I certainly have a much broader view of what gender is than I, than I once did when I started researching this, but that, that applies to so many things in life, that the binary thinking often locks us into um, traps that aren't really real. So, so thanks to you both. Yeah. And, and over to Dan, you've uh, you looked deeply in your research at uh, experiences of gay men's masculinity and their identity, and uh, your most recent, I, as far as I know, uh, work is uh, the research on the lived experience of sexual violence of, of men, both uh, cisgender um, and trans men, and their experience of sexual violence. What is what is most salient to you in that research? Uh, both as a scholar and as a as a human being. Yeah. yeah. Thanks. Thanks. Um, um, you know, I'm no, struck I'm, by Tracy's comments about sort of the intersectional work around masculinity. And uh, for me, I think when I first started reading the men and masculinities literature and scholarship, one of the things that stood out to me was a lot of it just didn't speak to who I was and my own lived experience. Um, a lot of it was shaped around sort of the experience of like an aggregate men um, as typically white, heterosexual, middle class, um, US bound, right? So it goes on and on. Um, mm -hmm. And a lot of that just didn't, um, I, I just questioned. I, I, my copy of Guyland was like scribble notes of like, this doesn't work for me or this doesn't, yeah, I, I can understand that, but there, there's something else here. Um, and so, you know, I think for me, my research is really me search and trying to understand sort of my own lived experiences and, and all of that. And, um, you know, I think for me, 
I'm drawn to understanding parts of this work uh, around men and masculinities that I think typically are un under discussed, often sort of pushed to the margin um, or rendered invisible, and and sometimes also taboo, right? So like so talking about gay men's sense of masculinity um, or um, college men who survived sexual violence, we just don't talk about this because it makes people uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And and so I guess, too, I'm wanting to agitate a little bit um, in my work, right? So I'm like a maybe budding scholar activist a little bit. Um, there's a part of me that likes that and a part of me that's sort of like, okay, um, have to figure that out. But for me, it, these stories become important because they aren't represented largely within the larger scholarship. And um, and and for especially um, the the current research that I'm doing with men who are survivors, um, I think it's just incredibly important because oftentimes when we frame conversations on sexual violence, that false binary of woman as survivor and man as perpetrator gets sort of reinforced over and over and over. And even if there's a statistic that gets brought in about men can be survivors, it's often sort of done as almost a one talking point and then we go back to the language that's gendered, right, um, of male male perpetrators and female um, survivors or women survivors um, and men um, and that's one of my bigger issues of like even language which will be down the line. Um, so I think that's that's one thing that comes to mind for me. It's just been really um, powerful, um, often disturbing, um, uh, you know, uh, out of the um, 15 men that I've interviewed around the sexual violence study, 11 of them are working or in graduate prep programs in higher ed. Um, and so we have a, a, this, this study of 11 folks who work in our field um, or will be working in our field um, that are survivors. And most have never shared with their supervisor and often are then asked to, unbeknownst to their supervisors, go and deal with sexual violence um, reporting or um, issues that come up in the residence halls, um, some who have been experiencing their, their violence in their workplaces by supervisors, by mentors, by classmates in their grad prep programs. So this is a larger piece that I think is is just, we haven't talked about it, folks are not talking about it, they don't, um, there's a lot of fear and shame wrapped up around this and I think being able to sort of voice that uh, is just becoming really important and I'm really glad to be able to engage in this work. Well, we're glad you're engaging in it, um, learning a lot from you. Um, you, you, know, you, you mentioned uh, there, the notion of the terms male and female and, and men and women and um, and you've been explicit about including both cisgender and trans men in your most recent research on sexual violence that was highlighted very clearly in the call that went out for participants and how you've described it and how you've written about that. Do you just want to say a little bit more about that? I think that's really important. Yeah, I, you know, for me, I think one of the critiques around sort of men and male, oftentimes in the scholar, in the literature, right, especially earlier on, I would say, although sometimes you still see it now, 
being used as a synonym, to me, I think those are very different terms, right? And so I define, and I try to be very explicit, when I'm using male, I'm talking about sex. When I'm talking about men, I'm talking about gender. Um, one can identify as both, but not everybody does, and so I just think that that's a really important sort of distinction within our work. Language becomes really important, and while other people will say, oh, that's semantics, I say no. It's it's very it's very real for folks, right? In terms of their their identity of sex and their identity of gender, um, and then how that gets embodied and performed becomes important. Um, for me, I, I really felt like um, as I was doing um, reading of current um, of existing literature, um, one there was just not a lot of conversation about men who were survivors of sexual violence, particularly, I mean, anywhere, but then particularly in higher ed. Um, and then when I'm reading statistics, like 50% of, of folks who identify as transgender are, uh, are likely to be survivors of sexual violence throughout the span of their life. And that LGBT people are three more times likely to be survivors of sexual violence throughout their lifespan than their heterosexual peers. To me, it became, I have to be able to engage both transgender and cisgender men and I want to hear their stories because yes they may be different but they're still experiencing the same institutional sort of response and that became a big piece of the study and the work um, and they're still affected by the socialization of masculinity regardless of whether you're trans or whether you're cis and that also becomes really important and so again going back to sort of Tracy's point about the intersectionality of this Within the sample, I have folks who identify in different sexual minority groups. I have a heterosexual men. I have um, cisgender, transgender men, um, men from different racial backgrounds, um, different social classes, right? So, and different geographical regions across the U.S. And so, that intersectional piece becomes really important in terms of understanding that. And there are differences and distinctions. But for me, I just felt like all of all of that really wanted. I wanted to make sure that trans men were a part of this. Yeah. No, I think that I think that's really critical. And I think if we're if what we're doing is studying or talking about or discussing the social experience of being gendered as a man, then we shouldn't be really using male. Mm -hmm. <laughs> if right. we're studying something else that's biological, then maybe, but that so easily comes just slip in our language, I think. So it's I, I really appreciate you uh, clarifying that. Well, we've had an opportunity to kind of hear from each of you in quite a bit of depth about the work that you're doing. I kind of want to move it around a little bit more quickly now, maybe get each of you to chime in, or, or we don't need to have all three of you chime in on these, but one of the things that I'm often asked is about healthy masculinities, and I think this is a new trending topic, and I remember 20 years ago asking Paul Kivel, who's a prolific scholar of men and masculinities, should we be trying to change the definition of what it means to be a man, or should we be trying to get rid of it altogether? And uh, he said, well, that's a good question. Good luck with that. <laughs> <laughs> and I had sort of come to him as this all-knowing person, which is, is a great reminder um, about how he engages his work. But as we think about the conversation around healthy masculinities, what do, you, what do you all think about, do you think we should be working to create more positive and healthy definitions of masculinities? Or should we be seeking to remove gender roles altogether? Any thoughts on that? Well, well good luck trying to remove gender roles altogether. Uh, on the other hand, I, it is a great question. That, that should be my response, right? What a great <laughs> question, Keith. Um, 
you know, as I've thought about, even when I was thinking of naming the center, you know, I've tried to come up with some creative ideas for what kind of masculinity, I've, I've thought about this a lot, like what kind of masculinity do I want for myself? What kind of masculinity do I want for my sons? What kind of masculinity do I want to promote? And the only thing that makes sense to me right now, and uh, I am way unfinished on this, uh, as I am with most things, um, is I, I'm very suspicious of any language that talks about healthy or positive or any form of masculinity that isn't uh, to some degree self-authored because we have a long history of what, what it means to, to attach social meaning and so whose definition of healthy do we use? Whose definition of positive do we use? So I, I kind of like the language of conscious masculinity because I can, I, I know when I spend more time thinking of what, of being conscious of what's happening in my environment, be conscious of what I've learned, what's been inscribed in me, then the more conscious I am of bringing my self to this conversation, to other conversations, rather than just pulling out the dogma, just all that stuff that I've learned over the years. So I try to be conscious. So I like the, the term conscious masculine. Yeah, Wilson, anything you want to add to that? You know, I'm thinking about, um, yeah, so gender roles, yeah, I think they are really difficult <laughs> to, and I think uh, we could eliminate gender roles if there weren't consequences still for uh, what it meant to um, uh, to hold certain identities, right? And so um, because we still live in a, um, a system of, of that, right, that is built, first of all, built on patriarchy, but I think it benefits certain um, identities and projections of masculinity. I think, uh, like, the idea of a conscious masculinity um, is something that I, I think I can get on board with. I think about this, um, the authoring you mentioned, right, the ability to define one's uh, own masculinity um, that maybe not, you know, positive or healthy, but it's, 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 um, it's a um, uh, conscious, right? Um, I think is is useful, right, for a way forward. But um, yeah, I think it's, I think it's a difficult question. Yeah. At best, so yeah. I I think I've tried to think about it as authentic masculinity, which sounds mm -hmm. similar and a little bit different from yours, Tracy, around conscious masculinity. And the comments remind me that another binary that I think we often fall into is we're gonna try and change the system? Are we going to help people successfully navigate the system as it exists? Yeah. Which we, we have to do both. And we can do both. We can work to change the system and help people survive in navigating the system. Um, and so, I, although I don't really resonate with healthy masculinities, I, I understand the strategy in some people in the audiences in, in using some of that. Um, I'm wondering... Uh, we started off talking about with what's in the news around sexual violence um, and Brock Turner and the criminal justice system and privilege and rape culture. Uh, let's also bring in another current topic. We, we are in an election year. Uh, and I'm wondering what um, gender tropes and what kind of hegemonic traditional gendered norms that you've noted in the current political arena. Have you, have you seen any of that happening at all? 
Yes, of course. Uh, I mean, I, I think I know. No, you're being facetious. Uh, uh, I mean, I think I think um, there's a lot of hegemonic stuff happening within the political arena, um, and I think what I think also when I've been doing some um, talks recently around equity and sort of how it shows up on campus, you know. The, Colleges, campus, college and university campuses are a microcosm of, of larger society, and so when we then see, um, you know, shocking uh, incidents at UCSD outside of the uh, cultural center for Latino students on campus, that's uh, reinforcing Trump's message of build the wall, deport, deport uh, Latinos back, deport Mexicans back um, over the border. You know, like that stuff becomes so entrenched, and and then. Um, how then we can create um, discourse and dialogue towards action, right? And so a lot of that, uh, I think, is, is critical. And, um, and so the hegemonic masculinity that's showing up um, is, is really, really pervasive around a whole bunch of issues. I mean, whether it's male privilege, whether it's about white privilege, whether it's about class privilege, I mean, all... all you know, again, not re trying to reinforce a binary and really be all of those things are happening here. Um, and and even, um, it's all parties, right? Like, I mean, there's still things that are happening in, in, across the board. And, and so, uh, for me, um, it's been uh, frightening, quite honestly, to sort of, like, uh, watch it because I know that that's also modeling for younger people a way of of dialogue and discourse and and it's it's not right it's not even dialogue or discourse it's just like shouting and yelling who can be louder um, and I think that's really um, really scary because we have to then unpack that for folks and I'm not sure that we are doing an adequate job of that largely um, especially for men seeing that as examples of how to how to engage with one another. You know, uh, I saw where Dartmouth University is uh, teaching a class on Black Lives Matter. Um, somebody around this group or somebody online that's listening right now ought to teach a course uh, using Trump as a, uh, as a uh, to deconstruct masculinity influences on much of this behavior. You don't have to spend much time doing it. I mean, we talked about hand size for crying out loud. You know, there's a lot of uh, in the discourse, in the public discourse, pick up a paper. Um, I agree with what Dan said earlier about how language, some people tend to think it's simply semantics. I would say it is semantics, but it's not simply semantics. You unfold that stuff and you can find, if you decontextualize it, recontextualize it, um, deconstruct it and take a look at it, it's pretty telling. Um, the language around whiteness is very similar. Uh, ways that we promote colorblindness reifies white privilege and keeps us uh, from talking about important topics. So on the one hand, I kind of like that Trump is out there and getting as much attention. I agree with Dan that I find it very problematic. And then, like, one side of my brain gets really kind of disconcerted, and then another part of my brain's like, wow, I don't have to look very hard to find examples for my teaching. <laughs> and you just pick up the 
paper during the television. It's right there in front of us. Mm -hmm. But then connected to a critical approach. Paulo Freire talks about um, moving from ingenious curiosity to epistemological curiosity to you know, inspiring people frameworks for understanding what's going on around them. Like I don't need to 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 convince people that uh, we live in a patriarchy. I don't. You shouldn't have to convince people that you live in a, a, a white supremacist culture. If you, it, it just kind of is what it is. If you have some filters for understanding what's going going on around you, there's sources of liberation for white folks within white supremacist. Uh, uh, ideology. There's a way of moving, resisting, and moving against, providing a counter narrative to patriarchal perspectives that in uh, that, that can move us towards liberation. Uh, what what uh, Wilson describes as agency. I think I, I hope we have an opportunity to do work together in the future because I think you're right on target with um, the. You know, on the one hand, we expose oppression, and that needs to happen. But again, not either oring it, expose it and provide agency, yes. both primarily for people who are targeted for it, but also show people who are privileged by it the agency they can have. What what liberation is provided to folks who have been unconscious of how their their identity is is inscribed upon them. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I would think everybody would be interested in being um, aware of what the world makes of us so that we can make something of ourselves. You know, that really resonates with me. I mean, Dan referred earlier to his, his research is really me-search, and I think when I was doing my research around college men's gender identity development, what got me out of bed at 6 o'clock in the morning to transcribe and code and write was uh, I was learning about myself and my dad, and my college friends, and my relationship with my partner, and I was just so eager to discover that. And learning to be more conscious around gender was incredibly liberating for me as someone with a lot of privilege, and certainly around my cisgender gender identity. And so I certainly found the liberation in that. Um, now that I have two daughters, I'm feeling like I'm not nearly as conscious as I was, was allowed to let myself believe. <laughs> Um, it's one thing to do it theoretically. It's one. It's a whole other thing to do um, with children who you love and you care about and you're worried about. So, um, Wilson, did you want to have comments about the the current political arena, <laughs> or do you want to pass? I'll pass. We have a question from Twitter um, from I think Kevin Carey. Yeah who wanted to uh, ask how do we begin engaging fraternity men in developing half, half, half healthy masculinities? Where do we begin? And I've been thinking about this question a lot as I'm, I'm helping to organize a, a <coughs> with the Student Conduct Administration uh, Association and uh, fraternity and sorority associations. And it, it occurs to me that if we didn't have fraternities and sororities and we had the issues around gender, maybe not the gender binary and, and trans folks, but we had the issues around sexual violence and men's drinking and the role of athletes in sexual violence. One idea that some smart person might come up with is what if we organized gender groups, organized around core values, had them live together and engage in service and academics around that? That, that might be a pretty good idea. And I think it, in, in theory it is a pretty good idea, and then, of course, in reality, that often is not really the lived experience of that. So 
are there thoughts about how we can really utilize the potential that is there with fraternities and sororities to uh, advance the conversation around men and masculinities, women and femininities, trans and gender nonconforming folks, and pushing the binary around gender? Okay. The, the, uh, I used to be a Greek advisor, and I, I've actually found Greeks to be responsive. Uh, I, I've worked with Greeks who are the least responsive folks I've, I've ever interacted with, the least developmentally open, and some the most. So, um, I, like you suggested, Keith, the, the structures themselves seem to be set up to be able to do some pretty cool developmental work, some pretty good social justice work, some pretty good learning. Um, I, 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 I'm reminded of a mentor of mine, who uh, J.Q. Adams, who always challenges me to think, you know, when I start complaining about somebody not getting it or somebody not uh, understanding, he'll say, who, who doesn't understand? And from an Eastern perspective, that's an elusive kind of question. And when I ask myself that question, a lot of times it's my ego that's driving. I, my own unfamiliarity or insecurity around or fear of the issue. When I really put the onus of doing social justice work on my own shoulders and say, Tracy, how, do you, how are you going to approach this in a way that's liberating as opposed to taking their inventory? I think I do it better. And so that doesn't answer your, your question from a strategy standpoint or from an outcome standpoint, but from a process standpoint, the more I think about myself as a student affairs professional or a faculty member in that learning environment, people surprise me. People will disappoint me. I disappoint other people. But I think if we invite people to capacity and hold Greeks especially, uh, hold them accountable to their values because I don't think it's in a lot of the charters or a lot of the ritual or a lot of the uh, missions that, that what they do is some of the stuff that they end up doing. I think we've moved away from that. If they get back to who they are and start being conscious of, of what their values are, there's a way to use language where it might sound like a left and a right perspective. You work that space between and you can find some common understanding where, um, but that's what this work looks like. It, 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 it's, it's that frustrating. It's that long. It's that difficult. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I like what you mentioned about um, the idea of values and uh, to build on that. Um, I think about what has, uh, inherently become destructive about the words uh, brotherhood and sisterhood, right? Um, that uh, allows for the type of uh, things we see, uh, particularly around hazing and or, um, you know, some of the, just the ideological blind spots that exist within uh, those, uh, <laughs> those definitions. And so how do we begin to maybe add to what those definitions are, right, um, in ways that are explicit, right? So what does it mean for um, our charter to include um, not only, you know, you talked about social justice, like to actually include um, like the activism toward, you know, X, Y, Z, right, or, or not just the promotion of social justice, but right, what does it look tangibly for us to, uh, to respond to or to take on feminist ideals and or uh, critical masculine uh, ideals, right? Um, and so maybe adding those to the charter um, and not just sort of allowing them to be these uh, 
uh, uh, under, under the auspice of brotherhood, sisterhood uh, could be um, could be helpful, right? So helping uh, charters or chapters to redefine that, uh, to write them out, um, visit the history one, but uh, to your point, but also maybe add to it. So, I think one of the things that comes to mind for me, uh, you know, um, and I know that the question is bound to fraternity and sororities, um, and I, I respect that. Um, and I'm going to move it slightly in a different direction. I think one of the things that I see is that if we are having the first conversations about consent and sexual violence in college, it's way too late, right? And I think one of the things that higher ed folks who are invested in making change around these issues of sexual violence, we need to be starting to be more proactive in advocating for larger conversations around consent, masculinities, all of these things at a younger age, right? So when we think about sexual education in high schools, um, in middle schools, often there is very little conversation around consent or masculinities, right? One of the things that came out in the sexual violence study that I did, um, one of the participants said, if you want to make a change in sexual violence, you have to change masculinity, right? So we have to have conversation with people across gender around how we're socialized in many ways and complicit in many ways to uphold rape culture and violence, right? So we're constantly operating under the assumption that we don't, we aren't violent to other people. Well, there's lots of violences. There's many violences that we enact. I mean, whether that's a microaggression or um, of other pieces, I mean, all of those build up. And I think to me, there's also this, this permeated culture of rape culture that then gets reinforced, whether it's fraternity or sorority life or other other examples, right? So an understanding that that happens across campus. It doesn't have to just be student athletes or, or fraternity men. Um, and, and so to me, I think there's a larger piece of how can we shift? How can we um, adapt the conversation um, to have folks, all folks, start thinking about these the ways in which we process messages, make meaning of those messages, and then either reject or uphold them in key ways. And I think that's a critical piece of this as well. And I think, you know, the dialogues, the conversational pieces that all, all, all have been shown to have great progress in college campuses, and along, especially with fraternity men, I have conversations about that. Um, get people involved in it as peer educators. Um, give them opportunities. I think those those are also critical pieces. So you know, keep keep working at it. But what else systemically do can we implement to make that change? Yeah, that's so profound. I think when I when I talk with college audiences about consent, all the college staff say you really need to get to them in high schools. And when I talk to high schools, they say you really need to get to them in junior high. Mm -hmm. And I spend a lot of time watching kindergartners play, and there's a lot of bad messages about consent mm -hmm. uh, six year olds. Um, or two-year-olds being told, you really need to hug grandma, whether you like it or not. You know, it, it goes back to the very beginning of that. We're going to get a link to uh, six ways we unintentionally perpetuate rape culture with children tweeted out. Um, so it's, it's such a salient point, Dan. We're, we're just about out of time. I want to do just a quick round. I'm going to challenge our panelists to uh, share with us uh, a gender scholar who's really engaging you right now, who's really pushing you to think differently in new ways, who, uh, who, who's, who's really nudging you. And uh, what I'm going to challenge you to do is share one 
and 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 just share one and and very briefly what they are, and don't go on and on about how wonderful they are. That'll be the challenge. <laughs> who's a, Dan? We'll start with you. Who's the who's a scholar on gender, particularly men and masculinities, who's really exciting you currently? I am really excited to get into T.J. Jurian's um, dissertation on transmasculine men. I think um, it's going to really be important work um, to really bring up um, additional pieces of conversation for for trans identified men, um, and so I'm excited for that. Awesome. Tracy, how about you? Uh, this is a hard question. I, I'm gonna. Bell Hooks um, has probably been the most profound scholar I've read in in over my career. Um, her her movement from slicing and dicing and deconstructing and telling the truth uh, to now doing that, and as as Wilson had suggested earlier, balancing that with this deep compassion. Uh, and doing, seeing criticality as an act of love, and it, that's how I experience it as well. And I, yeah, bell hooks. Well, Wilson, you're a doctoral student, so we saved you for last. <laughs> no trouble coming up with this. So, who's one person who's really exciting to you around gender and around men and masculinities? Um, I'm, I'm going to put a, an interdisciplinary lens on it and say uh, Tanahasi Coates. Uh, okay. I think that. Um, uh, if, if you haven't had an opportunity to read uh, Between the World and Me, I think it offers uh, some really keen insight on um, this, this, uh, this, the intersections of uh, race, of gender, of sex, um, and, uh, and class. And so I'll say ta Coast right now. Wonderful. And a nudge beyond the academy, too. That's great. Well, thank you to all three of you, and thank you to Rachel Wagner, who is not able to join us, but has helped all three of us learn, or all four of us learn and grow uh, mm -hmm. along our journey. Her wisdom certainly was shared her here, just not by her. Indeed. <laughs> thank you, Absolutely. Rachel, for, for what she's taught us. Um, thank you to our guests today, and thanks always to our program sponsors. You can receive reminders about these and other great shows by subscribing to the Higher Ed Live newsletter. You can also browse the archives at Higher Ed Live or subscribe to the iTunes podcast. I recently learned that more people listen to the podcast than watch the show. Uh, so that so maybe people will hear our voices who don't see our faces. Uh, I'm Keith Edwards. It's really an honor to be able to fill in for uh, my good friend Heather Shea Gasser. Uh, she will be back along with other episodes with her and with Tony Duty. Uh, thanks for watching, everyone. We hope you have a great week. Thank you all.